What's up, shadowy sleuths? Welcome to Sinister Silhouettes, the podcast where we dive headfirst into the darkest corners of the human psyche. I'm Tasha Pierce, your guide through the twisted tapestry of true crime, unsolved mysteries, and paranormal phenomena. Together, we'll unravel these sinister silhouettes, shining a light on the darkness that can reside within the human soul. Please do me the honor of rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Sinister Silhouettes wherever you're listening. Since the mid-19th century, Wall Street has been the leading financial center in the United States, in New York City. But it's also a symbol of the financial industry and the global economy. It's home to the New York Stock Exchange, the largest stock exchange in the world, as well as many other financial institutions. Think of it as like the beating heart of the global economy, where companies raise money by selling shares of stock and where investors buy and sell those shares. Wall Street also plays a role in other financial markets, such as the bond market and the currency market. It's like the financial playground for the big kids. It's where the big money is made and lost, and it's where the big players come to play. So if you're looking for a place to get rich quick, Wall Street is the place to be. But also be warned, it is also a place where you can lose your shirt just as quickly. Wall Street is a place of great innovation and creativity. It's where new financial products and services are developed, and it's where the latest trends in the financial markets are born. So today's story obviously has Wall Street as a setting, but not the present day version. No, we're jumping in the Wayback Machine and heading to Wall Street as it was in 1920. So a typical day on Wall Street in 1920 would have been a bustling and dynamic affair filled with the sights and sounds of financial activity. The day typically began early as financial professionals and traders hurriedly made their way to work. Men in well-tailored suits and hats would swarm the area along with some pioneering women who had started making inroads into the financial industry. At precisely 10 a.m., the New York Stock Exchange would open its doors and inside brokers and traders would gather on the trading floor, executing orders and trading stocks. The atmosphere would be charged with excitement, anticipation, and sometimes frenzied activity. Wall Street itself would be a hub of activity. The facades of impressive neoclassical buildings would tower above the streets, housing the offices of major financial institutions including J.P. Morgan and Company, which would be the epicenter of American finance at that time. Ticker tape machines would be clattering away, transmitting stock prices and news updates to traders. These machines were the cutting edge technology of the era, providing real-time information that traders relied on. The sidewalks would be teeming with bankers, brokers, clerks, messengers, rushing between buildings. Men in bowler hats and women in fashionable attire would be engaged in hurried discussions, clutching newspapers and stock certificates. Around noon, traders and workers would take a break for lunch. Restaurants and cafes in the vicinity, such as Delmonico's, would be filled with patrons discussing the morning's market activity and enjoying hearty meals. After lunch, trading would resume and the pace might become even more intense as the day progressed. The stock market would remain open 
until 3 o'clock p.m. Then after hours, after the closing bell, the financial elite would often gather at exclusive clubs and bars like the New York Stock Exchange Luncheon Club for drinks and socializing. This was where business deals were sometimes sealed and connections were forged. Traders and investors would eagerly await the evening edition of newspapers such as the Wall Street Journal to get the final word on market performance and financial news. In 1920, the technology was evolving, but it was a far cry from today's digital world. So communication relied on telephones, telegrams, handwritten notes, transportation looked like a mix of automobiles and horse-drawn carriages which is just insane to think about. Overall, a day on Wall Street in 1920 would have been a vibrant, bustling experience with the financial district serving as the epicenter of American finance and a symbol of the country's economic might. It was a place where fortunes were made and lost, where the ebb and flow of the market dictated the course of many lives. Now that we've painted that picture, let's talk about a day that was anything but ordinary. Thursday, September 16, 1920. It's a bustling noon in the heart of Wall Street, New York City. The sidewalks are crowded with folks grabbing a quick bite to eat, rushing between meetings, and chatting away their lunch breaks. Across the street from the J.P. Morgan & Company Bank at 23 Wall Street, a horse-drawn wagon came to a halt. Inside, that seemingly harmless wagon was a deadly secret. A hundred pounds of dynamite paired with a whopping 500 pounds of heavy cast iron sash weights, all set to explode in a timed, terrifying detonation. Boom! In an instant, chaos erupted as those massive weights were sent hurtling through the air. The blast derailed a streetcar a block over and sent debris soaring as high as the 34th floor of the nearby Equitable Building. The horse and wagon were obliterated, reduced to nothing more than small fragments. Pieces of that ill-fated horse landed hundreds of yards away. And witnesses recall the driver managing to escape, disappearing down a side street. We'll never learn the identity of that driver. But anywho, the toll was devastating. Among the victims, there were 38 souls lost, 30 of them immediately, eight of them later. Most of them were young people toiling away as messengers, stenographers, clerks, and brokers. The wounded, too, bore the scars of this horrendous event, suffering severe injuries. The aftermath of this explosive tragedy wasn't just measured in lives lost and people hurt. It also wreaked havoc on the financial world, causing over $2 million in property damage, a staggering amount equivalent to nearly $30 million in today's currency. The New York Stock Exchange, the epicenter of American finance, was not immune to the chaos either. The chief clerk of J.P. Morgan, Mr. William Joyce, who had been seated near the front window, was among those killed. And Junius Morgan, a son of J.P. Morgan Jr., was wounded. Joseph P. Kennedy, a stockbroker who would later become father to future president John F. Kennedy, was thrown several feet by the blast. In the blink of an eye, William H. Remick, 
the president of the New York Stock Exchange made a swift decision suspending trading to prevent a panic from engulfing the market. Outside, amidst the chaos and confusion, brave rescuers worked tirelessly to get the wounded to safety. A 17-year-old messenger boy named James Saul, in an act of sheer heroism, commandeered a parked car and ferried 30 injured individuals to a nearby hospital and police officers were arriving on the scene as well providing first aid and seizing any available automobiles to serve as makeshift ambulances for the many world war one veterans on the scene the devastation at ground zero looked just like a battlefield i can only imagine how this might have awakened some trauma from being in the war and how PTSD probably wasn't being addressed nearly as well as it is now. And I've got question about, questions about how well it's being handled now. So imagine the trauma that was reawakened by the sight of what happened on Wall Street. It, it had just become a no man's land of blood, broken glass, and charred bodies. The air was thick with smoke and soot, and severed limbs littered the ground. This was the deadliest terror attack in American history until Timothy McVeigh bombed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City 75 years later. Now, let's dive into the mysterious aftermath of this devastating incident. Since no one stepped forward to claim responsibility for the bombing, the New York Police Department found themselves grappling with a puzzling case, exploring a range of potential motives. First off, the idea of the bombing being an, an assassination attempt on J.P. Morgan Jr. was swiftly ruled out. Why, you ask? Because he was thousands of miles away in Europe when this tragic attack occurred. So it was clear that this wasn't about targeting this single individual. Another theory in the mix was this might have been an audacious attempt to rob the nearby sub-treasury building. On that very day, a staggering $900 million worth of gold bars was in transit. It was like something out of a Hollywood heist movie, but even that theory didn't hold water for long. The investigation eventually honed in on a chilling conclusion. This may have been an act of terrorism orchestrated by a group of individuals known as Reds. Yep, the Wall Street bombing occurred during the height of the Red Scare. So these Reds were a mix of anarchists and communist sympathizers who harbored a burning desire to shatter the symbols of American capitalism. And here's the smoking gun, a snack of, <laughs> and here's the smoking gun, a stack of anarchist flyers were discovered in a mailbox just a block away from Wall Street. And it seemed to back up this theory. The, the flyers read, remember, we will not tolerate any longer free to political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you. And it was signed American anarchist fighters. So. The letters bore a striking resemblance to those that were circulated after an earlier terror campaign from June 1919 when uh, bombs went off in several U.S. cities in a coordinated type of attack. 
The suspicion cast a wide net, landing on political radicals, communists, and anarchists who hailed from foreign lands, particularly Italians, Russians, and, of course, the Jews. Because the Jews were everybody's enemy in 1919. Anywho. The detectives embarked on an exhaustive hunt, leaving no stone unturned. They scoured every sash weight manufacturer and dealer across the United States and even ventured into 500 stables in towns lining the Atlantic coast. But despite their best efforts, the authorities never caught the people who did this terrible thing. The perpetrators remained a mystery. And this dark chapter in history is still full of so many unanswered questions. But we can dive now into the crazy world of suspects and the investigations following this horrific incident. One name that immediately stood out was Edwin P. Fisher, a man of many talents. He was a lawyer, a champion tennis player, and quite curiously, a frequent visitor to mental hospitals. Now, one day, Fisher sent postcards to all of his friends telling them that a bomb was gonna explode on Wall Street on September 16th. So he urged them to stay away from the area on that day. Fisher's friends were alarmed. They didn't know whether to believe him or not, but just to be on the safe side, <laughs> many of them decided to avoid Wall Street on September 16th. That, to me, would make me think that Edwin Fisher was a person who had placed a bomb in the horse-drawn wagon and that he was the perpetrator of this event. But on the day of the bombing, Fisher was arrested in Hamilton, Ontario. The police found out about the little postcards and they wanted to question him. So when the police brought Fisher back to New York, get this, he was wearing two suits on top of each other and a tennis outfit underneath. What? And, and I'm not trying to talk about this man because he has uh, obvious some type of mental health issue, but he told the police that he was wearing a tennis outfit because he never knew when an impromptu match would just break out. Well, you don't see that every day. It's like, were they doing that shit back in the 1920s? Like, like flash mobs? Was it instead of a flash mob, was it just out of nowhere a freaking tennis match would break out? Somebody tell me. And furthermore, isn't it counterproductive to have two suits on top of this tennis outfit? Because if the impromptu tennis match breaks out, who about to wait for you to take off two suits before we start serving the ball? I don't think Edwin had thought all of this through. But again, not funny, but funny. But I'm okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tease because this man obviously he has some issues. The police questioned Fisher at Bellevue Hospital, and he told them that through the air, God has sent him the messages about the bomb. So the police realized that Fisher was suffering from a mental disorder, and they sent him to the Amityville Asylum. Now, the doctors there diagnosed him as, yeah, he's insane, but he's harmless. Um, and, and they just released him. That was the first suspect that the police had their eyes on. Another figure on the suspect list was an Italian man named Pietro Angelo. His connection to a bomb plot in 1919 certainly raised eyebrows. However, Pietro managed to produce an alibi that seemed to clear his name. 
despite this, he found himself with a one-way ticket back to Italy. So he did not do this thing, but they had him connected to other things, namely probably these uh, series of bomb uh, attacks that happened in 1919. Other historians think the bombing was done by Angelo's anarchist comrades, the Galenists. They were named after Luigi Galini, an anarchist writer and bomb expert who inspired anarchists around the world. Galini had been deported to Italy in 1919, bon voyage, but the authorities still thought he was involved in these bombings from his uh, remote location. Another possible suspect was Mario Buda, an Italian anarchist who was close to Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, two radicals who were accused of murder after a botched robbery attempt. Buda then fled to Italy after the bombing and he remained there for the rest of his life. The investigation, meanwhile, kicked into high gear with both the Secret Service and the not-yet-federal Bureau of Investigation getting involved. Thousands of individuals were interrogated, many radicals were arrested, and as time went on, it became clear that no one could be charged with this crime. But we never, ever, ever let a great tragedy go to waste. This was um, the excuse to get a whole lot of Italians and a whole lot of Russians and a whole lot of Jews the fuck out of our country. <laughs> and y'all know how it is. It's whether they were guilty or not. This is our opportunity to purge the roles and get you guys on up out of here because we want you out of here anyway. And this is our excuse to put you out. Anywho, eventually, the investigation was shelved in the 1940s completely, leaving this mystery unsolved. So Wall Street, Wall Street reopened just one day after the deadly bombing. Determined to show the world that business would go on as usual, or to maybe show the world that money and the economy were more important than human lives. Bandaged office workers returned to their desks and all sides of the blast were quickly covered up or swept away, even though this destroyed evidence that could have helped the police investigation. And we've seen this time and time again after tragedies. We have to hurry up and get back to business as usual. We saw it most recently in the United States uh, during the pandemic where we need to open the economy up no, we are worshiping money in this country. And this is not me saying that I, I'm in favor of rolling uh, closures of the, the state or the nation because of this pandemic that's now quote unquote over. But at the beginning of the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, the reason why things were uh, getting hectic was because so many people were catching the virus at the same time. And we could not agree with one another on, hey, how do we best protect the vulnerable in the, this situation so that we are not uh, putting stress on the hospitals and the occupancies are not uh, where we have to set up triage centers in the hallways and the such. So we, we had all come up with the idea, you know, we're going to socially distance ourselves. We are going to wear masks and stay within six feet of other individuals. And we are going to keep our washing our hands and in the such. Stay in if you don't have to be out, because at this point, 
hospitals were overflowing with patients and people were very sick. So now that we know how to handle this thing with this kind of resurgence of this new variant of, of COVID, I really hope that even if you don't want to get vaccines, I'm not about to tell you what to do about that stuff, but the stuff that would protect the vulnerable, let's do that shit because I don't want to be in a position where we lose hundreds of thousands of people and we keep trying to go on like nothing has happened. Everybody does not have the resilience to just keep going like nothing happened. But anywho, I went off on a tangent. <laughs> I went off on a tangent. We could have had some evidence in the stuff that was swept away, but hindsight is twenty twenty. They, If they wouldn't have swept the shit away so soon, then we would have probably had a little bit more evidence to go on as far as finding out who did that. So the only thing that the residents of New York could do is go on. So that afternoon, thousands of New Yorkers gathered at the scene of the disaster to sing America the Beautiful and the National Anthem. Even in the face of tragedy, people came together and found strength in each other. The New York residents singing the national anthem at the site of the bombing is a testament to the strength, the resilience, and the hope of the human spirit and the inimitable grit of New Yorkers, which we have seen on display time and time again. I really, really don't have an eye-opening, fantastical theory, but I do have thoughts about Edwin Fisher. Edwin Fisher was ruled out as a suspect because he was in Canada at the time of the bombing. But his very specific premonitions of a bombing on Wall Street were dismissed as the ramblings of a mentally unwell person. And I wonder if Fisher didn't make these things up. He didn't make these details up. Rather, he overheard others discussing this sinister plot. He could have been a very important witness to the conspiracy phase of the incident, but now he's just a big what if because he was dismissed because he was mentally unwell. That was a, a very big missed opportunity to me. Um, the Wall Street bombing was a terrible tragedy, but without television or today's 24 hour news cycle to constantly remind them, it was soon forgotten. The Roaring Twenties was a time of great prosperity and people were more interested in making money than in remembering the past. No memorial was ever built to commemorate the bombing victims either. And the only thing that remains as a stark reminder of this tragedy is the shrapnel damage on the front of 23 Wall Street, serving as a silent, enduring testament to that fateful day. So, what did you think of today's trip down memory lane? Send feedback to SinisterSilhouettesPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for 18 reviews on Spotify and 69 on Apple Cop. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with my mouth today? Thanks for 18 reviews on Spotify and 69 on Apple Podcasts. So, keep those reviews coming. They do help the show grow. If you would like to support the show financially, 
patreon.com slash Tasha Pierce is where you would head. Make a donation, any donation that you would like to make as a recurring donation. I'd appreciate any help that you can give me. Before we wrap up this journey into the shadows, remember, the mystery don't stop here, fam. <laughs> if you got a theory, a question, or just want to share your thoughts, don't be shy. Reach out to me on our social media pages or via email because this podcast here is all about community. And hey, if you're enjoying these sinister silhouettes as much as I'm enjoying bringing them to you, make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss a single spine tingling episode. Until next time, shadowy sleuths, keep your flashlight handy and your curiosity alive. This is Tasha signing off. Stay sharp, stay sassy, and keep shining a light on those shadows. Be safe out there. Peace.